Welcome to Chit Chat, a judgment-free forum for conversation around hot topics that impact the Indian American community. Today, we have Arjun Sethi, who's a Sikh American civil and political rights writer, human rights lawyer, and professor of law at Georgetown, amongst many other things. Thanks so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to join you. I really want to encourage our listeners and encourage uh, South Asian folks to support of black communities. A lot of Indians that we've spoken with don't fully understand the, the black experience. They don't fully understand the reason for protesting. They don't fully understand looting and rioting. In recent weeks, we have seen the lynchings of numerous black folks in America. And so whether it's George Floyd, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and more recently, Richard Brooks in Atlanta, it's in many ways a testament to the organization and leadership of Black Lives Matter. Um, for a long time, um, that was a movement that didn't enjoy widespread support. But if you look at it now, more and more people are talking about things like structural racism, are talking about things like police reform, police brutality. A lot of these issues have been sort of boiling over. And finally, this was just the trigger. And so what we've seen in recent weeks um, is really an outpouring of emotion, of enthusiasm, and even righteous rage. And that's why we've seen protests across America. We have a white supremacist as president of the United States. It's also a reflection of who we have in, in the White House and also this nation's troubled history. And, but really black folks in America, um, their lives have never mattered. Um, and so when you look at slavery, when you look at Jim Crow, when you look at mass incarceration, um, their lives have always meant less or nothing at all in every epoch of American history. And so I think that's why folks are out on the streets. And I think that's why um, this moment is enjoying such a groundswell of support. In terms of what folks are describing as rioting and looting, it is true that there have been some outside elements who've engaged in that behavior, um, including white supremacist outfits. In some cases, uh, Black folks themselves have engaged in some of that behavior. And my response really comes from a Black writer, James Baldwin, who basically said to accuse a population who has been robbed of everything of looting is an abomination. And so again, when you look at American history and you look at the deprivation um, of African-American wealth. And you look at the ways in which their bodies haven't mattered and the ways in which they're being lynched today in 2020 in America. Um, I just think that there has been way too much attention and, and sort of focused on that. Baldwin also says this, when talking about um, images in the 60s of black folks stealing TVs, you know, he said very provocatively that I venture to believe that they don't actually want the TVs. They want you to know they were there. And that's consistent with what I've seen because there have been lots of incidents in DC. And so I saw someone break into a restaurant in DC and leave with nothing but pots and pans. Do they need those pots and pans? I don't know. Um, it might just be that it's a repudiation of this system that values buildings more than lives. Um, a system that values property rights um, more than their health. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think the majority of people have been peaceful protesters. And to put the focus on that takes away from the actual cause. And I, I was listening to Trevor Noah, and he explained it very eloquently as well, and saying that, 
it seems like the social contract has been broken, you know, where you expect police force to be protecting you and serving the public. And when that's broken, the social contract is broken. There is nothing there to abide by anymore. It's this lawlessness and there's frustration from this entire community then. I think a lot of people are also looking at it saying, is the best way to deal with this destruction of property? Or is there another avenue that people could be taking? And why are we necessarily hurting like a lot of business owners who are Black? When you put people in unconscionable circumstances, when you deprive them of rights, systematically, generationally, there's going to be a response, Mm -hmm. right? And so part of what we're also reckoning with in this moment isn't just the deprivation of wealth. Um, It's also generational trauma. But despite the fact that I'm a sick, um, in general, when I leave my home in DC, uh, because it's a liberal city, don't get profiled, don't get stopped by police. If you're a black person in certain parts of DC and you wanna leave your home and meet with other black folks to canvas, to put up signs, you might be stopped by police because they think you're about to sell or distribute drugs. If you show up at the Capitol, you might be stopped by Capitol Police. And so these everyday forms of advocacy, right, that we expect people to enjoy, we come to realize are in some ways privileges that some folks don't enjoy, that some folks don't have access to by virtue of the color of their skin. It's difficult, I think, to judge folks Um, who have been robbed of so much, who have been deprived of so much. And so one thing that I have been talking about publicly is the response of the criminal justice system um, shouldn't be to prosecute um, all of these people who violated curfew, uh, people who in some cases engaged in acts of vandalism, and in some cases people who even engaged in looting. Um, Because part of the reason that people are protesting is because of the criminal justice system. The United States is home to 5% of the world's total population, but houses 25% of the world's total prison population. And so the wrong response to this moment is to double down on the same institutions. And so one thing that I actually take a lot of encouragement from is that there are places in DC that were vandalized, that were broken into, that are now boarded up that read Black Lives Matter. And the owners have put up those signs or they put up signs that say criminal justice reform. And so for me, the answer in this case is actually restorative justice. And so let's have a conversation between some of the folks who engage in the vandalism, who engage in in, in the looting. And let's have them have conversations with these property owners. Um, Because again, part of the reason that we are here is because America has this extraordinarily dark, history and present of racial injustice. And for so long, we've tried to cover it up, we've tried to erase it, and we've tried to wash it away from history. Um, But as we've seen in just recent weeks, um, again, with with most notably the lynching of George Floyd, you know, it still endures today. So I I live in New York City, like I said earlier, and, you know, the the type of protests that I've seen here have, have varied. From the beginning, they, I would say, were a little bit more involving physical um, damage to buildings. And, you know, I'm, I've, I've seen it happen in front of me walking home after work. And of course, we've had the curfews at 8 p.m. I wake up in the morning to walk to the subway and I've seen that more buildings in my neighborhood are now damaged. And it, 
it definitely does not did not feel very safe at some point but at the same time there's not there's no room for judgment now things are just improving i feel like do you think there's more of an impact when there are protests that involve vandalism and things like that the vast majority of protesters have been peaceful um i think um, black leaders um, from across the country, from spanning many, many sectors, have talked about the importance of peaceful protests. And I think that is what we should, you know, predominantly be talking about. There is a broken social contract. If the police, who you are supposed to trust, um, can openly lynch you in streets, there is going to be a reaction. There's a building near the White House that a few days, you know, as recent as a few days ago, read in big black ink, why do we have to keep telling you Black Lives Matter? Look at what came before this. Colin Kaepernick, right, tried it. He engaged in a peaceful protest in the NFL, one of the most powerful institutions of America, and he was cast aside. And Roger Goodell and the NFL and all the NFL owners affirmed the racial hierarchy of America and said, if you don't adhere to it, you will be cast aside. That history matters. The answer is not to prosecute these folks, throw them in jail, throw away the key, which has been the response of the criminal justice system of America since time immemorial. It's to actually listen to these folks, something that no one's ever done. I come from a marketing background, and so I pay a special attention to the media and the stories that are spun from a pro standpoint you have social captured footage that is actually on the more fortunate side inspired and instigated this entire movement where people are being forced to be more reflective and actually push for change on the other hand you have news channels and the media hand-picking and curating stories for example i think as we talked about a lot of the news stories were all about the, the quote-unquote looting. It's really interesting, I think, to hear and to pay special attention to what you said about the business owners who are actually affected by this and how they feel. And I feel like I've read a lot of accounts about how, you know, restaurants that were destructive were harmed in this matter, you know, individuals coming up and saying, it's okay. I, this is something much bigger than my business. The media has really skewed the story and in turn skewed people's mindsets on what's actually happening. I think it's probably worth talking about, you know, what is the difference between Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter? If I were to go to like my grandmother's funeral, right? Um, you wouldn't say at that funeral, right, all lives matter. You would say, I'm sorry for your grandmother's loss. The fact of the matter is, is that again, throughout American history, Black lives have not mattered. That's why they were brought here in slave ships. That's why they were then persecuted through segregation and the Jim Crow. And that's why they are disproportionately targeted by the criminal justice system, the war on drugs, and mass incarceration. And so we say Black lives matter because it is a way of actually highlighting the fact that because of both express intentional and structural racism, their lives historically have never mattered. It's very specific conversation about how one particular community continues to face persecution in every walk of American life. What you said earlier, the idea of starting to listen is such a simple but incredible and 
powerful concept that I feel like not a lot of people have done. I mean, especially when you turn the conversation to looting and like, how could they do this? You're not trying to understand what are they trying to say? What are you missing? You're just continuing to blame, which is just feeling the problem. My dad said something yesterday that was like fairly awful and uplifting at the same time. He's been really disturbed by George Floyd's death. And so he got on a, a Black Lives Matter local call. And he came out and I was like, you know, how was it? And he said, I'm surprised that they had so many um, brilliant ideas. It was pretty disturbing because you're like, why are you surprised that they had great ideas? But at the same time, I mean, he was asking, he's like, how do I become less racist? And I was like, well, you kind of just did. I mean, you by, by sitting there and listening to them and trying to understand what they're saying, that's what you're doing. And I feel like a lot of this is just an empathy problem. If you're not willing to put yourself in somebody else's position and say, what are they feeling? What are they thinking? How, how is this for them? Then yeah, you probably don't get it. Um, but I think a lot of Indians think that racism isn't a thing you know if you work hard you can get anywhere don't worry about it you'll be fine you know i sometimes say that i feel like so much of my adult education has been around unlearning american exceptionalism right <laughs> because from the time that we are very young we are taught that america is exceptional we are taught that we don't have this history of struggle of racial injustice that we are in the position to have the moral high ground, to lecture the rest of the world around civil and human rights. And that in this country, there is a ladder of upward economic mobility that is accessible to all. And really my response is none other than something actually that Warren Buffett has said um, when he talks about the ovarian lottery, right? And for the most part, your lot in America is determined by virtue of the family that you are born into. Now, there are absolutely, without a doubt, exceptions, um, people who are able to escape um, that system. But those are the exceptions. And so, you know, that's why I think some of the conversation today that's happening around structural and systemic racism is so important, right? Because we need to tackle why Black folks face discrimination, as I said earlier, in every walk of American life, right? Whether it's hiring, whether it's um, wages, uh, whether it's access to healthcare, employment. Um, if you are a black woman in this country, it's something like you are two to three times more likely to die during childbirth than a white woman. And you can hold all variables constant, education, and, and, and so the fact of the matter is, is systemic and structural racism are real. Conservatives um, say it doesn't exist because they say it's just a natural consequence of policies. In addition to the United States deciding that they wanted to solve every perceived social ill with a hammer, namely the criminal justice system, we've also seen that the criminal justice system in so many ways was designed to profile, disenfranchise, and incapacitate, and exclude and control Black communities. And so for folks who want to learn more about this, I encourage them to read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. She makes the argument um, really powerfully, um, and like no one else, that um, mass incarceration is really a continuation of Jim Crow, namely a mechanism 
to control, incapacitate, and manage an entire community of folks. And so that's why folks want to defund the police. They see the police as not protecting and serving them. They see the police as punishing and brutalizing them. A lot of people, they say the cost of the current system can't be tolerated, right? We can't tolerate a police force openly lynching black folks in America. We can't tolerate a system that persecutes young black kids um, of the streets of New York, of the streets of DC, across this country, right? It's something like one in every three, you know, a, a young black people in this country is either in prison or on parole. The costs of the system are untenable. And together we have to fashion something new. And to start, we've got to defund the police. A disproportionate amount of the money is going to not just the police, but the military. What are we gonna get? We're gonna get guns, we're gonna get wars, we're gonna get cells, right? When in fact, we actually want something I think very different as a people and as a society. Some have said that it's a very idealistic, utopian solution and that we'll probably see the same problems, you know, whether these funds are moved to mental health professionals or policing, um, we still see the same problems from government funded agencies, like similar to what we see in social workers. You get a one call from like a Karen and, and again, these kids are taken away from their homes for unnecessary reasons and they receive this unquestioned immunity. So what do you say to those people who feel like, is this really a feasible solution to all this hatred? We have to take it very literally and very seriously when they talk about how they don't feel comfortable about police, how they feel brutalized by police, how they feel like they don't trust police. Now is also a time to be imaginative about what the possibilities are. Um, and, you know, I think you're right. I mean, I think exploitation, as we've talked about in the context of structural racism, can happen in many contexts. And so I think it's important not to idealize teachers, not to idealize educators, not to idealize, you know, public health professionals. Um, we all have to do better. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that, that we're struggling with as a country. Um, is recognizing that, 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 that these forces um, pervade so many different disciplines. What really needs to happen here is we need to listen to the Black voices, amplify those voices, and then work collaboratively with them to enact systemic change. In your book, American Hate, you spoke about how historically there were instances of two different minority communities coming together to support the greater good. How can we use those stories to inspire South Asians about how we can support the Black community? Thanks so much for the question. So um, in 2017, I traveled the country and I interviewed people who were targeted by hate violence in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election and in the aftermath. And it's a book called American Hate Survivors Speak Out. Um, it contains, you know, 14 testimonials. Truthfully, you need thousands of those volumes because there have been so many incidents of hate in America um, in the last few years and, of course, you know, throughout our history. Um, one of the things that I took great comfort in um, was, as you point out, the many examples of solidarity and intersectionality. And so some of the examples I give, Japanese Americans were amongst the very first folks to um, oppose the Muslim ban right? How Native folks uh, join Latinx communities at the border and talking about how borders are arbitrary and some of the ways in which you are caging uh, undocumented immigrants are the same ways that you caged us uh, Native folks throughout our history. Um, more recently, 
um, the African-American community in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, recently spent time with the Jewish community um, outside of Pittsburgh that attended the Tree of Life Synagogue. In terms of how we support Black folks, I mean, I, I think it goes back to something that, you know, I've been saying, I think one is just listening to them, being guided by them, giving them space, asking them how we can help. And so like in DC, for example, they're saying, um, you know what? Support our demands to defund the police. Um, submit video testimony to the city council. I've been able to serve as a legal observer. There's a lot of wealth in our communities. Support community organizations that are doing this work because they're often under-resourced. It's hard to say that we are allies of Black folks when there is so much anti-Blackness within our own communities. And so a lot of the work that I think we need to do also um, is in our own families and really just taking down, you know, those really, really destructive biases that um, you know, all of us have seen it one time or another. Thank you, Arjun, so much for your time. Um, I'm sure I can speak on behalf of all of these ladies and saying how enlightening it's been. It's empowering to hear about ways that we can be impactful in our daily lives even, simply by starting conversations with those around us. To learn more about Arjun Sethi's experiences, please check out his book, American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. Thank you so much for tuning in to our latest episode of Shit Shot. If you have any questions for the Chit Chat crew, have topics you'd like us to discuss, or just want to share your feelings, please feel free to email us at ilovechitchat at gmail.com. Don't forget, chat is spelled with two A's. Talk soon.